Next, this month's special series focus on neurology and psychiatry. Throughout this month, ReachMD welcomes an array of experts to explore developments in neuroscience and mental health. At first glance, minimally invasive spine surgery sounds like a contradiction. How could an operation on an area of the body so complex be navigated successfully through only a few simple incisions? How do the outcomes of minimally invasive spine surgery compare with the more traditional open surgery? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. Our guest is Dr. Paul Holman, a neurosurgeon for the Methodist Neurological Institute at the Methodist Hospital in Houston. Welcome, Dr. Holman. Good afternoon, Mark. Dr. Holman, give us a sense of the history behind the minimally invasive spinal surgeries. When did it begin? Where did it begin? And which procedure was the first one that it was done? Well, Mark, uh, believe it or not, uh, minimally invasive spine surgery has really uh, been around for the better part of uh, 15 or 20 years. And it always seems in surgery that the newer techniques are fresh ideas, but many times we're kind of reinventing the wheel. And back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, doctors were starting to try to perform operations to remove herniated discs by using percutaneous techniques. And over the ensuing years, we've started to do more complex operations such as fusions and stabilization operations after spinal trauma in these minimally invasive ways. Then why did it take so long before they actually became popular and done in this country? I think the development of the technology that's required to do these surgery safely and with the same degree of confidence and precision that is done with an open operation have really been lagging. But the development of tubular retractors and image-guided spinal surgery and certainly the more widespread uh, use of the operating microscope has been the key factors in terms of making this a more accepted and widespread practice. Well, Dr. Holman, how did you get your start on minimally invasive surgery? Well, I completed my residency here at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and when I was a resident, uh, these techniques were starting to surface, but again, most of the surgeons are fairly reluctant to jump into doing these without proof that the techniques are reproducible and that the outcomes are going to be safe because we always want to put the patient's interests at the forefront. But after I finished up in Houston, I spent some time as a fellow at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, and many of my mentors there were starting to perform these procedures, and I got uh, specialized training and really had a chance to learn these in the proper way. Are all residents now in their neurosurgical training learning minimally invasive techniques? I think it's pretty rare around the country now for neurosurgical trainees not to be exposed to at least some form of minimally invasive surgery. And I think that we'll find over the next five to 10 years that our young doctors that are learning are going to quickly become the experts because they're going to learn how to do these surgeries from day one. Now, I've been in practice for 26 years, and many surgeons of my age don't relish the idea of going back and doing extensive training for advanced complex laparoscopic surgery. What about the orthopedic and neurosurgeons that have been likewise in practice for many years? Are they embracing these new techniques? I think they are embracing these techniques, and certainly the way in which we do the decompression of the nerves and the reconstruction of the spine in many ways are exactly the same as you would do with an open operation. And with 
a few cases and some of the courses that are provided by our societies, it doesn't take long for an experienced surgeon to pick up these techniques. And I think it has to do a lot with uh, your willingness to have patience. And if you see the benefits and the improved recovery from surgery in terms of blood loss, the length of stay, the amount of medication the patient has to take after surgery, I think that's the benefit that surgeons are looking for and they'll invest the time because they really see that it's better for patients. Can you do the minimally invasive spinal surgery on an urgent or emergent basis? Yes, you can. These specialized techniques, the instruments that we have are readily available at our disposal at any you know time of the day or night. There's nothing that is so specialized that we can't do these things in a, let's say, a traumatic situation. And in fact, some of the surgeries that we may not have considered doing for critically ill patients that have trauma in the abdomen or chest from a motor vehicle accident that also have, let's say, a spinal fracture. We can do some of these surgeries in a minimally invasive way to stabilize their spine, have them get up out of bed, recover faster, and tolerate the surgery better than doing a bigger operation through an open technique. Now, we know that neurosurgical residency training certainly is probably the longest of all training. If one wants minimally invasive surgery, expertise in neurosurgery, is that included in those years of training or does someone have to take a fellowship like you did? I think, again, with the diffusion of this type of surgery and the popularity around the country, most residents that are training now are going to get some exposure, but certainly that's dependent to a certain degree on where you're doing your training. I think that if someone is really interested in minimally invasive techniques, many times they will do a fellowship to work with a specific doctor that's done a lot of the surgery, that's written a lot of the textbooks and so forth, just to become an expert and also to participate in uh, academic research and so forth. But my impression is that over the next five years or so, the vast majority of doctors that finish a neurosurgery training program are going to be proficient in these techniques. If you have just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Paul Holman, a neurosurgeon for the Methodist Neurological Institute at the Methodist Hospital in Houston. We are discussing the expanding role of minimally invasive spine surgery. Dr. Holman, compare the outcomes for minimally invasive surgery with the traditional open surgeries. Well, I think the outcomes in terms of the acute hospitalization, how long does someone need to be in the hospital after a, an extensive spine operation to control their pain after surgery, to get up and be able to walk around and be safe at home? We're quickly seeing that with the minimally invasive techniques, patients are getting out of the hospital maybe a day or two faster. And if you consider that the average length of stay is somewhere in the realm of four to five days, then this is a significant difference. I think the outcomes in terms of the relief of neurological symptoms and the long-term improvement in problems with mechanical back pain are pretty equivalent. When we talk about the long-term prognosis, have we been doing this long enough to accurately say we can state the long-term prognosis with accuracy? I think that when you look at the studies in the surgical literature, most studies on spinal fusion or disc operations have a follow-up that's in the realm of two years. It's difficult to get longer-term follow-up because people uh, go about their business. They don't necessarily want to follow up with a doctor if they're doing well. And we've had minimally invasive techniques now long enough to get those types of 
you know, one and a half, two-year follow-up. So I think that in terms of the surgical literature, we have fairly equivalent studies. And certainly one thing that people have to understand is that when you're treating problems in the spine, you can always treat today's problem today, but you can't fix tomorrow's problem today. So many times, whether surgeries are done for a minimally invasive or an open technique, we will see patients come back with problems in another part of the spine. And, and that is something that we unfortunately have to remind people of. Are there any disadvantages to the minimally invasive surgery procedures compared to open surgery? I don't think there are any major disadvantages. Nothing that we do with the minimally invasive techniques makes it more or less feasible that other surgeries down the road that a patient might need would be jeopardized. And I think that's one of the criteria that surgeons look at in terms of adopting new technology is can I do it safely? Can I do it with the same or better outcome that I've done the surgeries for years and years? And is it going to be something that is better for my patient down the road? So I don't think minimally invasive uh, surgery has any particular drawbacks. Do the anesthesiologists or the nurses or other assistants, do their roles change at all from doing minimally invasive surgery on the spine? I don't think the ancillary roles of the staff is necessarily different with any type of spinal instrumentation, the rods and the screws, and the different ways that we have of rebuilding the spine. Our surgical nurses always have to keep up with the new technology because it's ever-changing and evolving. But for minimally invasive surgery per se, I think that things run pretty much the way that they always do for the uh, other members of the OR staff, and I think that's something that's comforting to them. Now, when you do a minimally invasive surgery, do you use another neurosurgeon as a first assistant? Well, Mark, the um, institution that I work in is a, a neurosurgical training program. So uh, typically I have a neurosurgical resident doctor that's serving as my first assistant. And I think the, the question that you're angling at is, uh, do these techniques require a bigger surgical team or, yes. or specialized assistance? And they don't. When you do traditionally open surgery, do you usually use a, another surgeon if you didn't have a resident to help you? We also have uh, physician's assistants that will help us, or sometimes the surgical scrub techs will uh, provide first assistant duties. But sometimes when we're doing surgery in the spine, we'll have to do exposures to the anterior or the front aspect of the spine for trauma or for cancer. And in those instances, we do use general surgeons and vascular surgeons to provide the exposure around the chest or the abdomen. And those would be the most common reasons for a neurosurgeon or an orthopedic spine surgeon to do surgery with another surgical subspecialist. What's the most common minimally invasive surgeries on the uh, spine that you do? The most common minimally invasive surgery that we do on the spine would be a lumbar or lower back discectomy. So the classic problem of sciatica or pain radiating down the leg from compression of a nerve, we expose the spine through a minimally invasive technique using these small tubular retractors. And this is the most common operation that a typical neurosurgeon or orthopedic spine surgeon does on a day-to-day basis. Second to that would be fusion operations for a degenerated spine where there's abnormal motion and nerve compression. Do you ever do any open procedures anymore? I do. Occasionally, if someone has extensive scoliosis where we're going to be placing screws and rods in over many levels of the spine, or if patients have had previous surgery and we're concerned about placing these minimally invasive incisions, which are in a slightly different location, that occasionally will sway a surgeon to go back through a more traditional technique because we uh, might possibly be concerned about wound healing issues. But there's uh, still certainly a role for doing things in a standard fashion, but I think over time the ability 
ability to do surgery through these minimally invasive approaches will be pretty standard. In general surgery, there have been many papers written about the concern that the new young general surgeons will not know how to do an open common duct exploration or a complex open procedure because lack of experience during their training because so much was emphasized in terms of minimally invasive surgery. Does the same hold true, would you say, in the future in terms of neurosurgical training for the young surgeons? I don't think so. The approach to the spine is different. There's less muscle dissection. There's less collateral damage. But when you get to the meat of the matter, uh, it's still the spine that you're working with and the anatomy and the ability to understand the relationships is really no different. It's actually interesting. We do a lot of computer-assisted image-guided spinal surgery in our facility with the use of interoperative CT-type imaging. And I've actually found that these types of minimally invasive computer-assisted techniques actually help the resident doctors to learn the anatomy faster because they're able to get instantaneous feedback when they're trying to put screws into the spine to understand if they're in the right location. And so I think they actually have turned out to be valuable teaching techniques. Do the residents initially learn on cadavers? No. Uh, that's always a shocking thing to most people that you know resident doctors tend to learn on the fly, but we're working uh, with uh, experienced uh, mentors, and whether it's uh, spinal surgery or general surgery, most doctors learn by working on patients, and that's probably the most appropriate way to learn how to be a physician because you can never separate the technical aspect of what you're doing from the person that you're working on. Well, finally, Dr. Holman, I want you to look into your crystal ball and tell me, in the next 10 years, where do you see the next round of advancements coming in this area? I think that's an excellent question. If you look at the techniques that are evolving now, we're putting in screws into the spine with smaller incisions. We have fancier new technologies. But the uh, treatment of spinal disorders is probably going to take uh, the next turn when we learn about the disease processes and how we might prevent degeneration of certain portions of the spine. And I'll give you an example. It's very common for a person to have a herniated disc and have a small operation done in their 20s or 30s or 40s and come back and need a bigger operation like a fusion 5, 10, or 15 years later. And uh, there are many scientists that are working now to understand what are the factors that contribute to the ongoing degeneration in the spine and how, let's say, if we do a disc operation on someone in their 20s and 30s, can we use gene therapy or other biological techniques to cause the spine to heal or regenerate itself to prevent that ongoing uh, process. So I think uh, biological therapy for disc regeneration uh, is probably the next uh, great uh, technique that certainly is going to be a minimally invasive approach to preventing spinal uh, disease and problems with pain. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Paul Holman. We've been discussing the expanding role of minimally invasive spine surgery. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Neurology and Psychiatry.